Forbes Books presents The Sky's the Limit with host Dee Brown, the president and CEO of the P3 Group, the nation's largest minority, public, private, partnership real estate developer. Here's Dee. Thanks for joining me for the first episode of my podcast. I'm incredibly honored to have Warren Stevens as my first guest. Warren is one of the most successful American businessmen in the last 35 years. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of the Little Rock-based investment bank, Stevens, Inc. And on his watch, his company has grown from a single location to offices around the globe. Warren, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Dee. I'm delighted to join you, and I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, myself, as well as my listeners, I'm sure are excited to learn more about you and uh, Stevens, Inc. So if you don't mind, start with just giving us a little overview of what you do there at Stevens, Inc. Well, sure. We are an investment banking firm that's focused on small and mid-cap companies in various industries. And we do all the things that you would think about uh, investment banks doing just for, for smaller type companies, but we provide investment banking services, we do research, we have equity sales and trading. We also have a very significant private client effort. We also have, it's somewhat separate, an institutional money management group. Uh, and then, of course, where, where we all started was in public finance, and uh, that was the origin of the firm. And um, we're, we're still... Uh, very much involved in 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 that business. Um, we have uh, a Stevens Insurance, which is a brokerage division, and um, we also have, and this is makes us somewhat unusual, a very active private equity arm where we invest our own money in various. Uh, mainly private companies, although every now and again, there'll be a, there'll be a public company. That's pretty rare. We're different in the sense that we don't manage any outside money in that effort. It's, it's just the family money and then various partnerships of the, of the Stevens employees um, that are investors in that. So if you go back, you'd have to go back a long way. This really makes us not an investment bank, but more of a merchant bank under the classic definition of it. Which, which, frankly, uh, there used to be a lot of. There were a lot of them in the United Kingdom, uh, but they're almost none now. So um, we like we like the way we're positioned uh, with those two main efforts, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of synergy between the two, and and uh, it's worked out great. That's amazing. Now, Warren, there's a there's an amazing video on YouTube that captures the moment you were named the CEO of Stevens, Inc. Uh, this was back in 1986 on your 29th birthday. What do you remember about that day? Well, the, it's almost a miracle that that video even exists. I, I, we, uh, actually, our oldest son, Miles, found it looking through some old interviews and whatnot that we had. I didn't know it, it existed, but that was, that was a... Uh, it was obviously a great day for me, but it was it was odd in the sense I didn't really know what was going on. Harriet and I had been out of town, and I got this very opaque call that said, hey, you need to get back. Uh, there's going to be a company-wide meeting at 7 or 7.30 in the morning, and you got to be there. And I was going, 
okay, uh, you know, what, what, what's going on? And, and basically nobody would tell me. So when I went, uh, I knew something was up. I didn't know what it was. And, uh, uh, there, you know, then dad named me the CEO, which at age 29 was, was too early to do. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think he was still there very much involved and uh, my uncle was too. So they figured if I messed up, they could come in and either straighten me out or straighten up the, the mistakes I made. But, um, I mean, my wife, Harriet wasn't even there. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know what to tell her. I didn't know what it was about. And she, she was pregnant. And so I went back to the office and I called her and I said, you're not going to believe this. So she was delighted when our oldest found this, found this video cause she'd never even seen it. Wow. They say history is the best judge. And I think history shows that your dad made a great decision. Well, it's been, it's been great. We've had a great team of people uh, around us over the years. And do you know as well as anyone, it's teamwork that makes things happen. And um, we've, we've had people who have, who have a lot of longevity at the firm. They understand what we're trying to do. They believe in it. And I, I just have to get out of their way a lot of times now, which is great. Uh, they're, they're ready to, you know, they're, they know what they're doing and, and they're, they're headed headed down the we're all headed down the same highway, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. It has been said that your dad knew the firm had to make a change and you were the embodiment of change. What is it you think that your dad saw in you that made him appoint you CEO at such a young age? Uh, I don't know. The I think there was a general impression that after my dad and uncle passed on or retired or whatever, that the firm would, would not be in a position to continue. And I wanted to make sure that was not the case. And I wanted to, I wanted to preserve their legacy because it's really remarkable to me that this firm is based in one of the most unlikely places ever, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And what, what they accomplished uh, you, you know, in their careers, uh, I wanted to make sure that people could see what the foundation was that they gave us. So to do that, we had to, we had to add people. We had to, uh, you know, hire senior people. And again, you know, as well as I do, you know, hiring people is, is not an exact science. You don't bat a thousand, but we, we had a pretty good batting average and, and, uh, uh, and hiring people and, and then, uh, helping us, helping us grow the firm. And it's, it's been, I, I don't know if he saw that or not, but that's, that's always what I've wanted to do. No, absolutely. Now, Warren, you're the architect of this is capitalism, the educational video series. So obviously you're a fan of capitalism, but what does capitalism mean to you? Well, it, it means to me, the freedom for individuals to pursue their goals and objectives financially without any constraints within, within, you know, if you stay within the legal constraints, uh, but you're free to, to do whatever it is you think is, is in, is in your best interest. And there's so many wonderful stories about individuals doing that, building companies, creating a lot of wealth for their families, but also their 
employees and then having a great effect on their communities. And we're frankly just one example of that. I mean, my uncle started our firm in 1933 and really had a minimal education. I'm pretty, you know, he never got past the eighth grade. And for him to have accomplished what he did and then be in a position to where he helped my dad go to go to a high school and uh, it was actually a military school in Columbia, Tennessee, be the first and be the first person to graduate from uh, in the family from from college. And people have that opportunity in capitalism and in other state, more state controlled economies. They don't have that. And and I and I think it's a shame because the vast majority of individuals left to their own know what it is they want to do and they're passionate about it and they want, you know, they, they want to be successful and successful doesn't necessarily mean making a great deal of money, but they, they, they do well, they, they can support their families and be a productive member of society. And that's what capitalism offers. And it's done it better than any other system ever and it's pretty amazing to me that, that capitalism is under attack by many today in favor of more of a state-controlled economy when there's been no, no instance in history where the state-controlled economies perform nearly as well as, as the free enterprise systems. So I, my, my only conclusion about that is people have forgotten. You know, when I was, when I was growing up, you had this stark, division between the Soviet Union and the Eastern European uh, economies and countries and and the so-called Western countries. And there was no question what was better for the for the citizens and which system offered more freedom for, for individuals. We don't have that comparison these days. And, and so people kind of want to pursue a more of a a utopian society that I, I understand their desire. It just doesn't work. That's the reason we have the This Is Capitalism videos and podcasts to show people what can be done and what has been done. And I've had an opportunity to watch just about all of your uh, educational uh, series videos, and they are excellent. And w- when we were together last time, we talked about how capitalism and philanthropy kind of tie together. Could you elaborate on that from your perspective? I I would love to, you know, most Americans give to charitable organizations. They give to their churches, they give to organizations they're interested in, and they give to them primarily in their own community. And the ability to do that and support your own community is really the the, the backbone of this country. The, the, I don't remember the exact statistics, but the amount of money Americans give away is frankly an, an astounding amount, much more than any other country anywhere in the world, e- even in places that you would think they might be generous, like the so-called uh, former Western countries like France or uh, on, on the continent of Europe and, and even the UK, they tend to look for the government to take care of all their needs and the needs of the various communities. And I just think that would be a shame uh, if we lost that. And, and Arkansas is a great example of that. I mean, we we give 
we, we give to organizations outside of Arkansas, but the vast majority of what we give away is in Arkansas. And you, you don't have to look very far to see the impact of successful Arkansans and their philanthropy in the state. I mean, obviously, the greatest example of that is the, is the Waltons and the Walton Foundation and the Walton family. And we've certainly tried to do our part on that as well. And uh, I know others. I know others have too. But you know, I, I, we joked about it when we were together last week. There's a, a great philanthropist. You see that often when somebody dies, a notable person, and they say noted philanthropist passes away. Well, either that person or someone very closely related to that person was a very successful capitalist not too long before them, because you can't be you can't be a philanthropist without without the success in in business. Right. You're absolutely correct. And, and speaking of philanthropy, you and your wife, Harriet, are the co-chairs for the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts $128 million capital campaign. So tell us, where does your affinity for arts come from and why has this been such an important project for you and your wife? Well, Dee, we've actually uh, increased the goal. Uh, it was $128 million. Well, there's a long story about that. I mean, we started at about $45 million. Um, thinking that's what we could do. And then we, we raised the goal to 128, and now the goal is, is 142, and we've actually raised 136 million towards that. And this is a great public-private partnership with the city of Little Rock, who owns the actual buildings, being very supportive and, and giving us through a bond issue a little over $31 million dollars. But as you can see, or you can hear, we've raised over $100 million outside of that. And that's, that's really a testament to both the city leaders, but also the people who are given to support it. They get what we're trying to do. And I, I will tell you, Dee, we, when Harry and I first moved, moved here, I'm moving back and her moving here for the first time. We got really involved in the then Arkansas Arts Center, basically the entry level. I mean, Harriet was a volunteer helping to do receptions for the exhibition openings. She would actually do the food and the flowers. I would go down there and serve. They have a every other year big fundraiser called Tabriz, and Harriet and I volunteered to be servers at that. Uh, a lot of our friends did it. And frankly, the, the art center at that time was the best cultural institution in the, in the state of Arkansas. So that was in the early 80s. And, and it was easy to see that and to, and to want to get involved in it. And over the years, there have been other cultural institutions who, who have come up, and I'm happy for them. But the art center had lost a lot of uh, its luster, if you will, and we, we both have loved art. We've, we've been collectors since uh, our early days of being married. And it's just a wonderful thing to be, to be a part of, to be inspired by great artists or great art, even if, you, even if you can't collect, if you just get to go to exhibitions and go to museums. So we want to we make sure that the now Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts is in a position to do that well into the 21st century because our museum does so many 
important things. I mean, we have theater that has been geared towards uh, school-aged children for decades. Uh, we have uh, an art school where people can go in and take uh, drawing classes, pottery classes, uh, woodworking classes, ceramic classes, all, all kinds of things. And that's something that a lot of museums don't have, and we're fortunate to have all that. But this, this new facility, which it really is a new facility, is not only going to be architecturally very, very significant, because it's the architectural group we're, we're using has been a MacArthur Genius Award winner and uh, just does things literally all over the world. And it's a stunning building, but it's also going to be a very modern building and be able to accommodate all of the things uh, the museum wants to offer in, in different programmings. And so, you know, it's important not just for Little Rock, it's important for Central Arkansas and the state of Arkansas, I think, to, to have all of that. And we have been working hard at it. Uh, Harriet's also chair of the building committee. We're both on the foundation board and, of course, co-chairs of the capital campaign. And, and I must say that the generosity of Arkansans is, is really astounding. We've asked people to support that project uh, who are not historically donors to the arts or, or to the museum, and they have definitely uh, stepped forward and said, I get what you're trying to do. We're, we're, we're in and, and given significant amounts of money. Wow. I mean, it's such a, such a great project, a project that's really, uh, as you stated, it's important to uh, not just Little Rock and Central Arkansas, but a, a very good project for the entire state and the entire region, actually. Well, you're right. The, the, the region, I should have put that in there. You're absolutely right. Uh, the region is, is going to be a beneficiary as well. Absolutely. And I know that your, your dad was the former chairman of Augusta National, and so there you kind of inherited a love of golf. And uh, what lessons have you learned from golf uh, that you have been able to apply to business and life? You're right. I mean, I did, I did, I got exposed to golf when I was very young and have loved it ever since. And of course, dad and I played a lot of golf, particularly when I was, a, when I was a teenager, which is great because it's sometimes hard for parents and their teenage kids to find something they want to do together. And we didn't, at that time, we didn't really, we didn't really hunt or fish together. We, we, we did that later in our lives, but, um, you know, I played, so when I, I, my parents divorced and, and when I would come visit my dad, particularly in the summertime, he and I would go play golf on the weekends, but I'd play with his friends. So I would play golf with his golf group who were business people and lawyers and doctors. And, and I, I knew them, but I didn't really, you know, I never really spent any time with them like that. It was a great experience for a teenager to watch their joking around together, but knowing as a, as a teenager, knowing, you know, no one ever crossed a line and they were very supportive of each other. And golf is a, is a, is a great unique game in that, there, there are other games like this, but golf is, is, is you. It's, it's you versus the golf course. You're not playing an opponent per se. You're really playing yourself. And I think if you hear people 
particularly the PGA professionals and the LPGA professionals talk about it. They never say, well, I beat so-and-so or I, you know, you beat the golf course and you conquer your, your own fears, if you will, and doubts. And that goes back to all of the great players. And I've read, I read in a very good book on the great Bob Jones, the amateur who won the Grand Slam in the 30s. His battle was an inner battle. He would get extremely nervous. He would lose weight during tournaments. And he had to, he really had to conquer his fears. And, and even today, you hear that on a PGA or an LPGA telecast is the, the announcers who have been in that position on the tour say, well, you just have to steady your nerves, you know, breathe deeply, you know, and you're thinking, what's that about? But it's very true. And, you know, it's, it's not just true in golf. If you watch a lot of the best free throw shooters in the NBA, when they get on that line, the last thing they do is they take a deep breath and, and then they let it go. It's a little bit like basketball is a completely different sport. First of all, it's a it's a team sport and it's a wonderful sport, but it's it's so fast. The great thing, bad thing about golf is you hit a shot, then you you got time to think about your next one, and you know, and all kinds of crazy thoughts can run in your head during during that interval. Uh, but you have to you have to learn to to deal with it. So I learned how to have respect for everybody playing golf and, and on a golf course. And that carries over to life. It's not just golf. I mean, I think that's what the first tee tries to do is teach. They say life lessons. And I think, I think they do. It's a game of a certain amount of, of golf etiquette, which can carry over to life and gentlemanly behavior. And even though a lot of young girls and, and grown women play the game, I think that's an accurate accurate description it's it's a game that, that trains you in life i couldn't agree with you more i don't get to play as much as i used to but it's a game that really teaches you a lot of uh discipline and kind of bring out that uh inner competitiveness of, of you uh, it, it sure does i'm going to take a pivot back towards business just a little bit here and want to go back to uh 2008 and so your company is famously known for weathering the 2008 economic downturn without any government assistance. Your father, Jack, was once quoted as saying, no matter what happens today, if you can survive, you can always come back tomorrow and have a chance at success. During the financial crisis of 2008, you sent out a memo to your employees saying that the crisis was a historic opportunity. And in fact, your firm added additional employees during this time. How did your father's words shape your belief that times of crisis could also be an opportunity for growth? Dean, I'd, I'd love to tell you we could see the 08, 09 crisis coming, but like the vast majority of people, we, we didn't. And you really never see these things coming. It's been, it was my uncle and dad's experience. It's been my experience is you just, you just don't see it until it's upon you. And in the financial services industry, things happen really, really fast. And you have to stay prepared for that. And the only way to do that is to have a modest amount of debt on your business, because that's what gets so many firms in trouble. If they have too much debt leverage on their balance sheet, 
they can't refinance it in a in a crisis and that's what happened in 08 and 09 so many firms had debt to equity of 30 to 1 or even higher and there there's a there's a a theory that goes around is uh, it seems like every 20 or 30 years or so is that well we're we're very diversified and all these all these assets won't go down at the same time because there's such different categories that's a fallacy we saw that in 08 and 09 we've seen it before at 30 to 1 it you know if 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 your assets go down 3% for any reason at all you're basically out of business because your 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 equity is going to be wiped out and we just have never put ourselves in that type of position and frankly we never will because we're just we're so focused on that what you were saying what dad said as long as you have the ability to come back uh, the next day, you can be successful from there. What, what, what you can't do is is start over. You, you can start over in a lot of businesses and be fine. In our business, that's really not an option. Very, very um, interesting perspective there, Warren. Um, you know, obviously the 2008 economic crisis was one thing, and then we roll into 2020 and get caught off guard once again with the um, the COVID-19 pandemic. What right. has been, the, I guess, the greatest challenge you faced uh, within your company during COVID-19? I, I would have to say the thing we are focused on is a lot of our younger, newer employees are not getting the mentoring and the exposure that they otherwise would have if we were all back in the office because 85 percent of our employees are working remotely it's it's a testament to our team many of whom as i said have been here on our management team senior management team many of whom have been around our firm for a long time that it's worked as well as it has and i think that's one of the reasons it has worked so well is we've been uh, we, we, we've worked together so long. We, we have a great degree of trust and understanding of what we're all trying to do and what various departments are doing and how they all work together. But the young people, uh, we think have suffered and, and some of, you know, some of our, some of our not young people, some of our just regular employees have suffered as well in, in the sense. So if they worked in larger cities, Let's take some people in our New York offices and they're working in a very small apartment in New York. And um, some of them actually got depressed just in there working and, and living and working and not doing anything. And I certainly understand that. I think the mental health of a lot of people, not just in our firm, is going to be something that we'll be dealing with uh, long after the virus is under control and which seems thankfully to be to be happening uh, at least at least in the U.S. and hopefully around the world. Right. Earlier in our conversation, uh, I, I mentioned that you've been running the firm for over thirty years, and obviously you're not doing it for the money anymore. So, what's your inspiration to get up every day and, and still go to work and and keep pushing forward in the business? Well, I, I, you know, I, I I just think 
my goal has been the same all along as I want people to understand what my father and uncle accomplished in giving us such a great foundation to build from and what we can and what we can do. And there's no shortage of opportunity. We've been able to attract a lot of great people, you know, getting to work with with our internal team, but then also with with uh, individuals and and of course, um, corporate clients and, and cities and municipalities is very satisfying to, to me. It gives it gives us a lot of pride to, to help a community improve their uh, water system, their water and sewer system, or to improve their school system in, in, the, in the public finance arena, or to help a company uh, achieve its, its strategic goals and to help individuals achieve their financial goals. So it's just really, it's been, it's been fun. I don't really think about it uh, being, being work. I, I'm not really sure what I would do if I completely retired. I mean, there's only, there's only so much golf I can play and the older I get, the less, <laughs> the less of that I can, I can play probably. So <laughs> it's fun and it's fun to, to be part of a successful team. And uh, you and I talked about athletics, you know, being part of a successful team is, is really really fun but just being part of a team is right. fun too no i couldn't agree with you more uh of course you know uh our spaces that we operate in kind of overlap in that public finance yep. and uh arena and i i tell my my team every day i said i can't believe i get paid to do what i do you know i, I enjoy it so much so <laughs> isn't, isn't that the truth i i've early yeah. early in my career I'll, I'll never forget it the guy's still a friend uh, he was down in Houston. He was in the oil business and I was having dinner with him one night and he looked at me yeah. and he said, so this is your job. You go around and, and kind of meet people <laughs> and, and see what they're doing. I said, yeah, can you believe that? He said, what a right. great job. <laughs> I have a similar story. This actually happened about two weeks ago. Uh, we were at the Cowboys club in Dallas with uh, Emmett Smith and some more business uh, associates and, we were sitting around eating and, and having a few cocktails, and my I had my intern with me, and he calls me Mr. B. He said, "Mr. B." He said, "I can't believe you paid me to do this." <laughs> well, well, it's true, right? I mean, I tell that to to people all the time if they're just starting out in their career, you know, find something you love to do. It doesn't matter what it is. If you love doing it, one, you're going to be good at it, and you're going to be passionate about it, and you're going to have fun. And that was. You know, somebody asked my dad what was his business philosophy, and I, I'm on I'm on clean it up a little bit for for the listeners out there. But, but he said he said, well, I want to I want to make money and have a good time. Okay, who doesn't want to do that? I mean, right. But but the good time part is applicable whether you're in a a five hundred one c three or or whatever you're in. That's right. Okay, Warren, we have to stop right here, but coming up in the second part of my conversation with Warren Stevens, the chairman, president, and CEO of Stevens, Inc., Warren talks about the time his dad invited him to visit the boardroom of Walmart. You know, here I am, a teenager, and I go to this board meeting, and I'm sitting there somewhere in their headquarters at a fold-up Formica top table, and they gave us a sandwich, but if you wanted a Coke or a cup of coffee... You had to go get it out of the vending machine. I mean, they, they, you, you had to, as an employee, you paid for your coffee. 
it worked. This has been The Sky's the Limit with Dee Brown. To find out more about Dee, go to dbrownceo.com. And to connect with the P3 Group, check out thep3groupinc.com. The Sky's the Limit is a production of Forbes Books.